going to be in the book of Romans chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you want to turn there. If you don't, there's notes on the back of your handout that will help you along a little bit. Uh, but let me let me just pause to pray for a second. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to learn from it today. We know from your word that the book of Hebrews, that it is active and alive. Paul has told us in chapter one of the book of Romans that your word is powerful. And so as we open to study, we uh, don't just want to, uh, we don't just want this for to be an intellectual exercise, but one that sifts down into our souls and gives us hope in what you are doing, even though things around us look very hard, you're actively at work and you're loving us and providing uh, truth and hope in um, our lives and we're thankful for that. And so we're asking for your word to run down deep into our hearts and our lives and that we would be formed and transformed by it for that we give you thanks for your word and then ask for help from the spirit who helps us in our application and obedience thank you for hearing us and this time uh, together it is a gift so we say thank you amen Okay, so I just want to take a minute and remind us about what we are doing in this series that we have been called Foundations. It's up on the screen behind me, at least I was hoping it was, and it is. So this year, we have really been considering the foundations of our faith. We've been, in many ways, considering ground zero of the Bible in a world where so much is shifting, including many who would proclaim faith in God, it is of utmost importance that we develop our understanding about those things that are immovable. Truths that have stood the test of time and will continue to stand the test of time. They serve as this immovable, immovable reality. And as the author of Hebrews says, as an anchor for our soul. And so to do that, you remember we started way back in January in Genesis. And we considered the character of God as well as the centrality of him and his intended purpose for creation and for creating us men and women. So then we also considered as we moved through Genesis who man is, who, who we are. What have we been created to do in light of who God is? How through willful sin we get, we fall away or are distracted from the original purposes from which where we were created. But remember, we didn't venture long into the book of Genesis before we see God's redemptive plan to bring men and women back to himself. So in Genesis chapter 12, we were introduced to a man whose name was Abraham who would be credited or counted with God's own Righteousness. Even as we read as we started, God didn't stir up in Abraham a righteousness that was his. He had to give Abraham his own righteousness. Then we fast forwarded to the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham as we made our way into the beginning part of the book of Hebrews. 
And we focus there on the supremacy of Christ, who is the central figure, the promised one, the promise that Abraham was looking forward to but never saw. And the book of Hebrews puts forth forward Jesus as the central figure for the entire Bible and also for men's restoration back to God. True? And so Hebrews confirmed Jesus as the long-promised Messiah King, again, who Abraham waited for in faith. So after a few chapters in Hebrews, we paused and we moved through the book of James and we considered how this faith that is placed in God for a righteousness that he gives to us actually works. Remember the book of James is a book about how faith actually functions. In other words, James unpacked for us how the Christian who has been restored in relationship with God practically lives day to day, minute by minute. James is going to argue, or we learned he argued, that just to say we have faith isn't real faith. Faith that's real and genuine is always accompanied by actions that are resulting from that kind of faith. So that was the book of James. And then we dove back into the second part of Genesis and took a a detail at the origins of this righteousness that we possess through faith. I'm not trying to overwhelm, right? But I'm giving you a 30,000 flyover for those of us who have been here. And then for those of you who are just coming in, kind of where are these guys and where they've come from and where are we going? But in the past few weeks, we've been in the book of Romans where Paul is reaching back to these very foundational truths that we've been working through through the first part of the year. He's reaching back literally into Genesis, into the life of Abraham, and he is explaining the origins or the foundation of faith that brings about our justification. Or we could say it, faith that's placed in the work that God has done that removes our sin debt. Paul has been, we are now in chapter 4 in the first three chapters, Paul has argued that God is both just in his wrath against sin, yet at the same time, He is gracious as the justifier of those who have sinned, counting Christ's righteousness to those of us who do not deserve it. Yeah? It's a good truth. And so after introducing himself in chapter 1, Paul has been presenting this desperate need that all men have for righteousness. Whether it's this pagan unrighteous person who says, I don't need the law of God. I'll make my own rules. I'll make my own laws. Or it's the self-righteous person who says, you know what? Those people need the truth of God, but me, I'm doing okay. Both the unrighteous pagan and the self-righteous religious person have a sin problem that needs to be taken care of. By God himself. And Paul has been arguing this point. And he ends his discourse to the self-righteous. Remember we were in chapter 2 last week. In particular he was hunkering down on the self-righteous. And talking to them. And he ends chapter 3 with a hypothetical question. Where is boasting? Or in other words. What do you possibly have to brag about based on your obedience. And he answers his own hypothetical question and he says, all your boasting is completely gone. It's devastated. True? None of us, in other words, have even the most 
religiously religious among us, none of us have a leg to stand on on our own good works. We need God's kindness and Jesus' atoning sacrifice for us. Boasting is gone. Paul goes on to say, and why is it gone? It's excluded by what kind of law? By the law of works? No, our boasting goes away by the law of faith. Therefore, none of us can say, man, I can't believe those people, but at least I, remember? That's gone. We have nothing to boast about. And so Paul concludes the end of chapter 3 by admonishing his readers, us, that man cannot be his own sacrifice. Offering up our good works for, as atonement for our sin. We can't, we cannot do that. We cannot make that happen. But the righteousness that we receive has been given at God's expense. Call this the atonement through Christ and comes to a life through faith. So now we come to Romans chapter 4. And Paul presents Abraham as the example of a life that has righteousness by faith. Abraham is the consummate faith walker. Abraham's life demonstrates that Abraham was justified that he was declared righteous when he wasn't by God on the basis of faith, not on works. And so Romans 4 is actually a show and tell of Romans chapter 3. Remember, did you ever do show and tells when you were a kid? I did. The Besosa family, I I remember one time I took in a, a chicken that was interesting. I had a wild chipmunk that I caught, and um, the chipmunk got loose in my second grade classroom. Remember that old song, "The Day the Squirrel Went Berserk"? No, it was it was kind of like that in in our second grade classroom. And I remember um, my teacher banning me from being, bringing in any more live animals from show and tell. But this is Paul's live show and tell about a life that has gained righteousness, but not by works, by faith. And the interesting thing is, he brings up Abraham, who would be the hero of the Jewish faith. And most of Jewish recipients would have received this idea of Paul, or of Abraham being justified by faith as a complete 180 degree switch from what they grew up thinking. I remember the day that happened to me. I grew up thinking I could earn my way to heaven. I grew up being taught that good works would earn me a right standing before God. But I knew in my spirit that I had done enough that that was never going to work. Right? And had this epiphanal moment where I understood the truth of the gospel, this is why Christ died, because I couldn't do it myself. So again, Paul finishes chapter 3, verse 28, with this, a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law, and to prove his point, Paul calls on the most revered man in all of Judaism, Abraham. And he demonstrates that Abraham established the priority of faith over works. He presents Abraham 
as exhibit one. So here we're going to jump in to Romans chapter 4. And we're going to read through sections. And then we're going to think about foundation lessons from the life of Abraham. I'd encourage you, if you're going to open your Bibles this week and study or read with your family or a friend, it's really good to look back and think how many foundational doctrines, realities that Paul addresses in this one chapter through his show-and-tell character of Abraham. So let's look at verse 1 of Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to his flesh. So Paul is arguing, he's putting forth a question, what did Abraham gain by all the things that he did in his flesh? He is arguing that Abraham's work was the result of his belief of his faith. That Abraham didn't do things in order to gain God's favor. In order to gain God's favor, Abraham had faith in what God would say, and so then he acted accordingly. In other words, Abraham's work was predicated on the belief of what God would do, not on his own belief of what he would do. And Paul's going to apply his truths in this chapter to both Jew and Gentile, but in particular he's talking to his Jewish readers in the church that was in Rome. And he's primarily using, again, this central figure of Judaism to make a point to those who are trusting in their religious heritage and some things that they had done religiously in order to save themselves. And Paul is saying to them, if Abraham gained nothing in the flesh, then you gain nothing by being part of Abraham's flesh line. The Jews had believed that, wow, we're in with God because we are physically connected with Abraham. And Paul's point is, Paul, Abraham gained nothing physically by obeying the Lord. So what do you gain by being physically connected with somebody who physically gained nothing from the Lord? And he's telling his readers, it must be something deeper than Abraham's fleshly obedience. You must be more than just connected religiously to a religious person. So if we go back to chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Paul says this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter or by the law. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Abraham is saying a matter of being Jewish, or we could say it this way, a matter of being connected to God relationally is not just a matter of ethnic heritage. It's a condition of your spirit. Your outward external religious activities, in this case circumcision, does nothing for you, some activity done in the flesh, if something hasn't transpired in your spirit. Now, make no mistake, Abraham obeyed God tangibly, and that had meaning. It's not that Abraham's obedience didn't matter. A matter of fact, Hebrews would say that his obedience actually pleased God, He brought God pleasure by his obedience because it was done in faith. 
But his obedience alone was not enough. So we saw ways when we were in the book of Genesis that obey God, that Abraham obeyed God. God said to Abraham, go to this land, even though you don't know where the heck you're going. Abraham went. God said, take your son Isaac and offer him up as an offering. So he piled him up with wood and marched him up a mountain. God said, circumcise all the males in your family. Abraham obeyed that day. But Abraham's enthusiasm in his doing was not to earn God's favor. Abraham's enthusiasm was in his belief that you, Lord, will do what you say. You will do it. Whatever you say goes. So you want me to go to a different land? I'm going. You you tell the truth. You want me to sacrifice my son as an offering? Kind of lost on this one? I'll do it. You want me to do what with my family? I'll obey today. But it wasn't, I've got to do that or God's going to squash me. I better do this so that I can earn God's favor. Abraham knew, you do what you say. So when you tell me to do something, I trust you enough that I'll obey. Abraham's enthusiasm in his doing was his belief that God would do what he says. So in this very first verse, what do we learn from Abraham? The lesson that we learn here is we gain nothing by religious activity. We gain nothing by being religiously at work. Religious activity alone gains us no righteousness. What's the second lesson, foundational lesson that we learn from Abraham? Verses 2 through 6. For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does this scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So if Abraham earned his righteousness, then God would be in his debt. He owes him something. And what we know is God owes no man nothing. However, he freely gives, or Paul uses counts, righteousness to him, even though they don't deserve it. If you've been working on our study principles and using some, you know, looking for repetitive words, if you go through chapter 4, you will see the word counted 10 times. Anytime a word is repeated, remember, it's important. We ought to be paying attention. And this righteousness was given because of Abraham's faith not earned by his works. And again, Paul doesn't just leave this hanging out there, but he gains, he, he grounds it in Scripture. So in verse 3, when it says, For what does the Scripture say? Paul is actually quoting Genesis 15.6. Genesis 15.6 says, And he, being God, brought him, Abraham, outside and said, Look toward heaven and, the num- and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God takes Abraham outside. He says, look up. That's how many people are going to be in your line. Abraham's thinking physical. God's talking spiritual. But there is going to be an innumerable amount of people that will be part of your line. And Abraham said, Okay, you might have heard the statement when you were growing up, 
God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Well, this is happening right here. God takes Abraham outside. God says it. Abraham believes it. And that settles it. You could even say, God said it. God said it. That settles it. Abraham believed it. And in his belief, the Lord counted righteousness to Abraham. Righteousness was counted to Abraham because of his faith in what God was said. It was not, righteousness was not counted to Abraham as a payment for his good works. And Paul points out to the Gentiles and the Jews in the Roman church, that is the way it's always been. This is not something new ushered in when Christ came. Salvation by faith is the way it's always been. So two, two ways to think about this, and Paul is correcting one. If I do this act, God will do what he says. That's religion. The other way to think about this is, God will do what he says, therefore I will act accordingly. That's faith. Church, I'm going to encourage us to consider that it's easy for us to fall into religion versus faith. True? You'll know when you've done this, by the way, when one of two things happen. You start adjusting your obedience to get what you want. Or you get upset with God because he hasn't given you what you think you deserve. And when either of those two things happen, we can know we've confused religion with faith. But here's the lesson in verses 2 through 6 that Abraham's life teaches us. God owes us nothing for religious obedience. As we tailed off in verse 6, in verse 5... There's a comma at the end of verse 5, but then continues in verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So now Paul is going to quote David. Verse 7. Blessed blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And so Abraham sets the precedent of righteousness by faith in the book of Genesis. David, his descendant, who later becomes king of Israel, confirms this same truth in the Psalms. I want to draw our attention to something Paul says in verse 5. It says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. We need to understand that this justification of the ungodly is not disconnected from David's name of verse five is not disconnected from David's name in verse six. And so when Paul says that God justifies the ungodly, David says, He is linking David with ungodliness. Now, oftentimes, David is heralded as a hero in the Bible, and he is. But we also know that David had a really sordid past. True? There was no works David could do to erase that sin. He needed a righteousness outside of himself that would overwhelm and overcome and pay for his sin debt. True? And so we may not normally think of the wicked when we think of David. But after his sin of coveting and then lust and manipulation and adultery and then murder and cover up. After that, David writes these words that Paul records 
Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. This is a man who knows his sin. And blessed is the man who the Lord forgives his sins, whose sin is covered. And then he repeats himself, blessed is the man against whom the Lord accounts no iniquity. Don't miss Paul's point. For the first two chapters, he's been discussing the wickedness and the unrighteousness Now he gives us an example of a wicked person who has been justified by faith. And it's David. And here's the right, here's the lesson for us in verses seven through eight. Righteousness comes by faith after we sin. The next lesson from Abraham's life comes in verses 9 through 12. Abraham's righteousness was declared before works. Let me read it. Verse 9. Is this blessing then, this blessing of the removal of sin that Paul just quoted David saying in verses 7 and 8, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Again, we're looking for repetitive words. If you count how many times before he was circumcised, before he did this act, before he was counted as righteous. David's righteousness comes after his sin. Abraham's righteousness was given to him before he worked. Paul is making the point that the physical sign of circumcision, which the Jews clung so closely to as a sign of their righteousness, that sign came 14 years after God declared Abraham righteous. And so circumcision, or we could say, by way of application to us, Religious activities do nothing unless they flow from a heart that believes what God said. So the author of Hebrews says, obedience that pleases the Lord is the result of believing what God has said. So the author says this, without faith, it is impossible To please the Lord. And so the lesson here for us from Abraham's life. Is that righteousness comes. Before we obey. The fifth thing that. Foundational lesson we learn from the life of Abraham. Is in verses 13 through 15. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. A lot packed into here, uh, trying to give us an overview There are two words related to this word that Paul starts verse 13 with for the promise. 
And there's two words that relate to this word promise. You either get the promise by the law or you get the promise by faith. So Paul is distinguishing between the two. It's either or. You can't have it both ways. Either either the promise comes through the law or it comes by faith. The problem is the only thing the law can do is to point out to you that you don't deserve the promise. That's the point of the law. And so he's saying at the end when he says where there is no law, there is no transgression. What does that mean? Well, Paul is simply saying that if the law is simply saying Paul is saying that the law cannot give what it attempts to point out in your life that you don't deserve the promise If the law doesn't exist, you don't realize your need for the promise. Law language is you shall, and it demands obedience. Promise language is I will, and it demands our faith. And the word that is attached that Paul wants us to see to promise is faith. And so what God said to Abraham was not obey this law and I will give you blessing, but rather I will bless you. Believe what I say. And Abraham did. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And so the lesson for us here is this. We got, we church, we must Keep God's work, God's work for us central to our hearts and minds and not ours. And if you, like me, get that upside down or backwards and you're spending so much time thinking about your works and what you're doing and how you're doing and how you're... You're you're going... To lose sight of your anchor. That we, we must keep God's work, the gospel, the good news of Christ, central in our minds and hearts and not our works. And the last thing we're going to pick up on is in verses 16 through 17. This last foundational truth We've already seen that Abraham believed God for righteousness. He believed God for righteousness. And now we're going to see that he also believed God unto righteousness. In other words, his faith resulted in action with tangible results. You following me? We don't think about this much, but we are benefactors of a man who obeyed in faith 4,000 years ago. Abraham, I am convinced I could be wrong about this, but when he was standing out under the stars and God said, these are like the numbers of your descendants. He had no clue we would be sitting in a room 4,000 years later talking about his faith. This is a work of God. Church, when Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, he doesn't just say it contains the power of God. He says the gospel is the power of God. This is what we're talking about. That this righteousness obtained by faith has to be carried 4,000 years by God alone. True? You, you, am, am I connecting dots here? 
Abraham, on his best day, could not throw his fruit 4,000 years ahead. Church, what we're doing here, apart from the power of God and our connection to this gospel reality, it lives and dies here. Apart from the power of God working through the gospel, none of this matters. But our faith-driven obedience, our faith-filled, imbued, gasoline-empowered obedience has the ability to help other people grow and change. That's the power of the gospel. Like Abraham, we are called to obey in faith. He didn't even have the law written by Moses. We have the Bible. We've got a little bit of future knowledge, but there's still a lot we don't know. But we're still called. God says, I'm going to finish this work. I'm going to complete it. Christ is going to establish his kingdom. Sin will be eradicated. Tears will be no more. I am going to do that work. It's been a long time, Lord. Not in my clock, okay? But I am going to do it. We are called to obey the Lord in faith and believe what he says. Church, that means we live differently today. We are a people of hope. Because God's going to do what he says. We are a people with an anchor for our soul. Because God is going to do what he says. And so we live differently. We display his character. Ordering, filling, resting. Fruitfully and redemptively ordering the world in God's stead. That's what we were created to do. We are back to the Genesis plan because of Christ our King. You with me? So through Christ Jesus, we are restored to God to be part of his redemptive plan to bring God's presence to the nations. Hey, you guys wait. We have been connected back to the Lord through faith in Christ's righteousness given to us so that we could bring the presence of God to people. What a better time to do it when all hell is literally breaking loose to be a people who says, hey, this is kind of crazy and chaotic, I get it, but I believe God's going to do what he says. So I have hope. And there's hope for you. We have to have a long view of our obedience that comes from faith. If you obey in faith, church, 4,000 years from now, it's making a difference. Here's the lesson for us. Believe the God, believe the gospel of Jesus for righteousness and believe the gospel of Jesus Unto righteousness. Everything I'm picking up. Remember, if you remember, last week I prayed publicly. Lord, teach me what it means to be a leader who's confident and yet humble. Everything I'm picking up is on the gospel. I picked up a book by Paul Tripp. It was given to me at a banquet. And it's on leadership. I thought, oh, I'm a leader. I read this. And he said, I'm going to tell you what right now. This book is all about leadership in, through the lens of the gospel of Christ. I've been eager to teach this message and for us to absorb it. Because I, I, I believe God wants to call us to a deeper appreciation of what he's done for us through the book of Romans. Hope that's been happening with you. It has with me that the the, being recipients of the gospel should change the way I talk to my family, the way I view what's going on in my world. But isn't it easy for us to get comfortable in our own righteousness and our efforts and be 
lulled to apathy by the familiarity of our own beliefs and our religious involvement. Isn't it easy for us, church? Isn't it ironic how profoundly easy it is to feel so inadequate and yet be so self-righteous to other people? Isn't it easy for us to forget the glorious good news that has rescued us from pending doom? Isn't that easy? How do we forget the good news of God? Because we've lost sight of the fundamentals. True? How is it that we forget this fantastic news or grow so accustomed to it that we need something else? Because we've forgotten the fundamentals. We have lost our footing from our foundation. In his second epistle, Peter, second Peter chapter one says this. I'm going to summarize the verse till we get to the end. He says, we have access to the power of God to grow in every area of our life and our character. And then he goes on to say that when we find ourselves stagnant or lacking growth or apathetic or we don't have any peace in our lives or we're being extremely selfish or we're focused on the sins of others and we're ungrateful and we're ineffective, Peter says this, it's because we have forgotten that we were cleansed from our former sins. Do you know why we forget the good news of God? Because we've forgotten the fundamentals. Peter says when we find ourselves in dry spots or backsliding or stagnant. I would have said where I have been in my life the last couple of months, I would call it a dry spot. God's reminding me, my son, it's because you've forgotten the fundamentals. You've forgotten who I am, how much I love you, what I've called you to do. You've lost sight. And he's saying to me through the book of Romans, and I hope to you, I don't remember the fundamentals. Bob closed the service last week reminding us that we need the gospel of Christ in justification And we also need the gospel of Christ and sanctification. That was a good word to end with, brother. In other words, we need Jesus to be rescued from our unrighteousness eternally. And we need Jesus to be rescued from our unrighteousness daily. I've encouraged you to grab a hold of this little book. And um, they're in the back. They're free. I confused it last week. They're free. They're a gift for you. And when we run out, we're going to get more. So please take one. This has been really good. 31 little things. You can read through one a day and just meditate on it. I offer it to you. The church offers it to you. One of the things that this author says was so helpful to me. Day five, he says, The glory of God is the most powerful agent of transformation available to mankind. Hear it again, my Caucasian honky friends. Okay, This ought to stir you up. The glory of God is the most powerful agent of transformation available to mankind. It is so powerful that it transforms those who merely gaze upon it. The Apostle Paul gives personal testimony concerning this stunning fact. But, we all says... We all, he says, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Second Corinthians 3. From Paul's testimony, I learn that if I wish to become all that God wants me to be, I must behold his glory each day. Yeah. The gospel does not just contain the power of God, it is the power of God. And so let's remember and absorb some life lessons 
from our show-and-tell character, Abraham. We gain nothing by religious activity. God owes us nothing for religious obedience. Righteousness comes by faith after we sin. Righteousness comes by faith before we work. Let's keep God's work central in our minds and hearts. And let's believe the gospel for righteousness. And believe the gospel unto righteousness. Father, you have been so kind to us. Even if we paused for a few moments just to recall individually the sin in our lives. We, we could be easily overwhelmed. And yet you have reached out and offered freely to exchange our unrighteousness for your unrighteousness through the atoning work of Christ Jesus, our King and Lord, our Messiah and Savior on the cross on our behalf. And we believe that is true and want to believe it more and more till it changes the way we interact with you, with our spouses, with our children, with our neighbors, with the people we come in contact with, wherever you place us so that we might be salt and light, bringing the hope and the good news that you care and love about people and want them to know you and become your, become your children, your family. May we absorb this message and may we give it out for your glory to put your righteousness on display, not ours. And so we're thankful people today for your kindness to us. Help us to walk.